All right, welcome into the 12 o'clock hour. Chris Alberta back with you. It's the last day of the uh, the mini Chris Alberta Marathon. I'll be sad to wake up tomorrow and be back at my desk working with my clients, but not sad, not that sad because good grief, I've had to cover Israel and we've talked about the UAW nonstop. We're going to kind of pick up where we left off. I'm feeling spicy today, though. I had jalapenos last night, and they can't get that mad at me if I get a little spicy today. So we'll have fun with it. 800-859-0957 is the telephone number. We're looking for participation today. That's the complaint line, if you want. But let's let's pick off with uh, pick up with where we left off yesterday. We waited for an hour or so for President Biden to get to the microphone. It ended up not happening during my time on the air. How did he do? I mean, the jury's out. I don't know why the jury's out, frankly. He, he did what he was supposed to do. Biden came to the microphone. He said some very important things. He was as strong, I think, as an 80-year-old man who has certainly lost a, some spring in his step. Some of his faculties are waning. I wouldn't, I'm not going to go so far as to say the guy was a mess behind the mic. There was meandering at times, the story about... Uh, Somebody, you know, one of the old people in Israel taking a picture with him in a hallway or something. I didn't know where that was all headed. But did he say the right things for the most part? Yeah. If there is disappointment, especially from commentators on the right, it is about what was not said. So what was not said? What was left out? I think the the main disappointment, um, if there is merit to it, is that there was no real strong direct statement saying if you harm one more American, especially an American hostage, I'm coming for you, and it's going to be bad. And that leads to some disappointment. But many other good things were said. I think that some of the frustration over the lack of insinuation that we know Iran is responsible is predictable. They're, they're looking for what almost every columnist at this point is calling a direct link. They're not going to find a direct link. That's the whole idea. That's how mafias operate. They launder money through several different layers. But by the time it actually hits the street, it's very hard to trace back to the original source. You're not going to find a direct link, which is exactly why they're not saying that. I did think it was smart that the White House press corps did experience a little bit of actual language alluding to the fact that those in Congress and Senate who are showing support to Palestine at this point are off the mark. Um, certainly Ilhan Omar stepped in it pretty bad. And I, I will give credit to the White House for coming out and saying unequivocally, we do not support this. I think it's uh, incredibly insane that someone like Cory Bush, who really is like a Kardashian of Washington, D.C., why is Cory Bush relevant? And certainly why are her thoughts as an African-American woman who's not has no Palestinian heritage whatsoever? Why does what she thinks matter? That, that's wild to me. I mean, she is famous for getting over-involved and, and parroting the Cori Bush uh, murder case, which turned out, you know, at least Obama's DOJ found that it was a justified shooting. She really didn't have grounds for what she was doing. That's why she's famous. That's why she's sitting there. She's not really qualified, in my opinion. But people voted for her. Frankly, the same way that people voted for Rashida Tlaib. And this is, this is where I get in trouble with all my conservative friends, and I'm happy to be in trouble with both sides. I guess that's the part of this particular job that I enjoy most. Two things can be true at the same time. Dave Rieger, do you agree with that? The two things that are oppositional can be true at the same time. I do agree with that. Uh, okay. You are correct. That, that Two things that are opposite can be both correct. I'm not crazy about Rashida Tlaib. I don't know why they voted for her, but... But she is an American citizen. She was she was born here. She has had to sit for decades and decades 
around a table full of her ancestors from Palestine, who I'm sure have told her every possible story about the hardships they endured, and she has a chip on her shoulder. So does the woman have a right, a civil right and a freedom of speech right to say, this kind of violence is as abhorrent, but I wish for peace in this region and that some of it probably wouldn't be happening had this incursion or this incursion wouldn't be happening had this occupation not been the case for the last hundred years. She's got a right to say that. She may even be justified in some in some parts of that argument, but it does not excuse her or anybody else from acting as though killing women, killing children, raping women, taking hostages is an act of anything other than terror. So I'm proud of the fact that Biden did what he was supposed to do. I can I cannot love the man, but I will respect the office, and I think you should too. Conversely, we did see a whole lot of Trump yesterday. Rigger, did you catch any of Trump's comments? A few here and there. Um, he always has uh, he always has something to say. Oh, that's an understatement. I mean, I uh, again, I don't want to disrespect the office or the former president. I find the ongoing saga of making jokes and talking about how Jimmy Carter is the happiest guy because he's not the worst president anymore, according to the history books, so on and so forth. I find that insulting to the people of Israel that are, are suffering right now. I don't get it. He doesn't need to, to do all that kind of crazy joking and, and calling people lunatics and inept and so on and so forth. That verbal ineptitude, in my opinion, and the inability to stay focused and be professional and be compassionate is what cost him the last election. Diarrhea of the mouth. I would call that. I am sad for the people of Israel. This is an abhorrent thing. Making statements like this never would have happened is just simply untrue. It's a possibility. Certainly the Biden, the Obama slash Biden series of years where a lot, a lot of money was filtered to these, these foreign governments makes a difference. I think you can absolutely make the case that if we drill for our own oil, the same oil that we walk on top of every day, and we took that privilege away from them, and we kept hundreds of billions of dollars out of the pockets of, of countries like Iran, who ultimately do sponsor Hezbollah, do sponsor Hamas, that's an issue that probably wouldn't manifest itself in the same ways that we're experiencing right now. But you can't say things like, it never would have happened. He's in enough trouble. The people who are, are convinced that he is the answer are not going to be any more convinced by saying things like that. But making fun of leadership and mocking is not going to bring the people in the middle back his way. What else is going on, Rigger? We got a little bit of UAW talk today. Um, we're also going to get into a touch about Whitmer talking about incentive programs. How do we bring more, more jobs here and more people here? Since they're leaving, why are people leaving Michigan? I think that uh, they have various reasons. Um, I think that you and I were talking about uh, climate, and it seems to be a big reason. You're not buying it. I'm not buying it at all. And I, I just talked about this with one of my smartest pals recently. I, do, I simply don't understand it. As a guy who gets to travel quite a bit and play golf in other states and go to conferences and things, if you believe in, in climate change and global warming, this is one of the nicest places to be. I mean, honestly, if water is our second most precious resource next to oil, we got a ton of water. Our winters are getting milder. That is true. 
right? Our summers haven't been as brutal. I have a brother who lives in Phoenix. That's, by the way, Phoenix, Arizona is where the palest United States citizens live. (laughs) You told me that. Yeah, no one goes outside. When you walk around and you look at all the women, they're all their legs are pasty white. Why? Why? Because it's they're all in the air conditioning. It's hard to go outside when it's 117. But it's a dry heat, though. Yeah, it's a, well, it's a dry heat, right? You're not, you're not right. in a sauna. But the, you know, if you go to Florida, you, 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 have, you don't sweat. You just pass out. <laughs> that's terrific. If you're in Florida, you might pass out because of the humidity. Wow. The humidity you, is, is the the humidity in Florida during the summer is it, you, it's it's crazy. You I love I love it. our state. I just I simply don't get it. I was up fishing in the river last uh, week in the doing fly fishing up at the Pierre Marquette and, and driving through. Which I'm going to touch on this later, by the way, about all the open space we have. Look out an airplane window sometime coming back into Michigan and marvel at how much open space we have. But it is gorgeous here. Do we lack some of the infrastructure for massive job expansion? Possibly. That could change over the years. Do we have a nice climate in four seasons? Most of the time, yeah. We don't have hurricanes. A lot of people say that they like the changing of the seasons, and they miss, the people that live down in Florida or Arizona, they miss the changing of Amen, the seasons. Amen, baby. I, like, I, I don't like hurricanes, and I don't like um, the, the threat of an earthquake. But I sure right. do like the Great Lakes. Back after the break with Jonathan Savage. What if God was one of us is the is the tagline in that song, the chorus to that song. If God was one of us, I think he'd be pretty appalled at where we are at watching what's going across the news screens right now. We talked the last couple of days, obviously, about Israel. One of the things that I had pointed out um, a couple of days ago when this first started is one of the biggest beneficiaries of this entire conflict has to be Vladimir Putin at this point. I mean, battling against Ukraine, Ukraine, our life, we are their lifeblood at this point for ammunition and resources and funds. And Jonathan Savage joins us, Fox News correspondent. Jonathan, you're out in Belgium for the NATO meetings. Is is Ukraine rather just absolutely freaking out at this point about potential for lack of resources now being split between two wars? I don't know about freaking out, but um, Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, turned up here for an unannounced visit, and there was no doubt that Israel was on his mind. He knows that that is what is foremost in the minds of much of the world right now. Um, And he talked at some length about Israel when he arrived here this morning. He likened the attacks to what he describes as the Russian terrorists that invaded his country. And he said that what he learned from that, how, how important it is not to be alone. So yes, he wanted to show support to Israel after what he called the tragedy of the Hamas attacks. But also, he wanted to emphasize that in his mind, Putin and Hamas, they're all terrorists and they all have the same goal. That keeps Ukraine in the minds of his allies as well. Very well said. In, in, the, in this series of NATO meetings, especially in light of the fact that our GOP is lacking a speaker at the moment, the National Defense Authorization Act hasn't fully passed yet. There is questions of funding that was intended for Ukraine and, and quite a bit of deliberation on our side about how much would go that direction. There certainly is a little bit of fatigue on that particular issue. Is there any sense that there is some fear on the Ukraine side? They know that Israel is one of our biggest allies and they may become priority number one and shove him down the list to touch Zelensky. Well, I think Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, um, really wanted to make it clear that that was not what was going to happen. What he just said just a few minutes ago, um, before I spoke to you, I heard him say that um, in terms of Ukraine and Israel, as the most powerful country in the world, the United States can do both and will do both. This morning, he started off by just 
putting the message out there, uh, reiterating why Ukraine matters to the U.S. and why it should matter to American citizens, listing reasons, including the fact that, that Putin's war is a vast and urgent threat and that if Russia wins, it will claw away the rules-based order that has made the world so much safer. So, yes, he's aware that people might be looking at what's happening in Congress um, and he came here today to tell his allies, to tell Vladimir Putin that, look, democracy sometimes is messy, but he believes that there is still broad bipartisan support in Congress for U.S. support of Ukraine. And he said he's confident that will continue. Great. Jonathan, as you sit there taking notes, what is the general feeling of other countries now that are part of NATO that have in, in many ways officially or unofficially thrown their hat in the ring to help Israel at all costs with this. Is there, where do we stand on that outside of the U S and some of the European allies? The U S is certainly taking the lead with this. Um, we know that they sent a carrier group to the Eastern Mediterranean um, to offer support and, and also really just to sort of stand guard in case anyone else should try and take advantage of that. Um, what we're going to hear tomorrow is the uh, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant calling in to this NATO meeting by video call. So he'll get to hear directly um, the support that his NATO allies, many of them, have gone out of their way to send their condolences, to express their outrage. And, and he's going to then brief them tomorrow on the Israeli response. We won't get to hear all of that in public, of course, but I think it is significant that so many today um, have come out and emphasized that they're standing side by side with Israel. Sure. Okay, great. So then the rest of the of the series of meetings, then what, what are the other things on the agenda? Is there anything really relevant or has most everything taken a backseat to what's happening in Israel at this point? Well, there are a bunch of things that are, that are on, on the agenda. Today was mostly focused on Ukraine since President Zelensky turned up. Um, uh, but then also they're going to be talking about NATO involvement in Iraq tomorrow, NATO involvement in Kosovo. Um, and at the, the, their last summit in the summer, they uh, basically revamped NATO's entire defensive posture, 300,000 troops on alert. And they're going to talk more about how to make that a reality and how to ensure that, that NATO's eastern border, the border, of course, closest to Russia, is as shored up and as secure, as secure as it can possibly be. Sure. Okay. So as you you know as you act as reporter and bystander and as human being suffering under the same news cycle that we all are, what is the most encouraging thing, Jonathan, that you, as a takeaway for you so far, having witnessed what's happening? Well, you know, um, this is my first visit to NATO headquarters, and as you walk up to the to the, the public entrance, you have to walk past two really significant objects that are there uh, partly as art pieces and partly as memorials. On the left, a piece of the Berlin Wall, uh, a reminder of why NATO existed in the first place, the, the division between West and East and how uh, NATO played a part in ending that division. And then on, on your right, there is a uh, part of the twisted steel from the North Tower of the World Trade Center, a reminder that on the 12th of September 2001, NATO enacted Article 5, invoked Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all. So I think the most optimistic thing is that there is still unity in NATO and there are still people working for peace. That's great. Jonathan, thanks for joining the program today. We appreciate your input as always. Dave Rieger, that's one of the coolest things 
to think about that in times like this, we are all human beings. And despite what we may see on the news, the divisiveness in our own politics, uh, on, at the world stage, most of these countries recognize a crime against human beings that is so insufferable and so ridiculous like this has to be dealt with swiftly. And everyone seems to come together and in, in a landscape that largely is devoid of encouraging things the last few days. That is pretty cool to hear, is it not? 100%. At the end of the day, you're correct. We are all, you know, human beings at the end of the day. No matter where we fall politically, where we fall religion, ethnic, ethnicity, whatever. At the end of the day, we're all humans. And so um, I don't know about anybody else, but and I'm sure that... What's going, what's going on over there is, is just horrible. Territorially, we live in a different world than many do. I mean, we, if I was driving a, across the border to do something and, I, and I, I saw a child or something hurt or stuck or in crisis or anybody really stuck or hurt or in crisis and I was in Indiana, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say to myself, well, geez, you know, I'm from Michigan and they're from Indiana. I'm not stopping to help that person who's stuck on the side of the no, road of or something not. like that. This is one of the things that we forget is that Europe – and, and many other parts of the world are divided by lines that are not that dissimilar than the lines we have here. We just call these 50 states. So it's good to see that the men and women across this globe are uniting to fight against something evil. Praise the Lord for that. Back in just a few minutes, and we're going to get into a little argument about EVs. It's going to be fun. Well, welcome back in. We're shifting gears a little bit. We're going to get into the EV talk. And I am lucky enough, having done this quite a few times now, to have a guy that I always enjoy having on, Paul Eisenstein, editor at headlight.news. And Paul, I, I'm glad to have you, man. I, as a fellow car enthusiast, we see things a touch differently, but I was hoping for a really good, friendly scrap today. Are you up for it? <laughs> well, let's see what we get into. All right. Well, listen, I think, to be fair, arguments all die with agreement, right? Exactly. And exactly. I have been reading and reading and reading, and I'm not an EV owner yet. I'm not saying that I won't be. I think one of the things that I've picked up from you in the past that frustrates you is that it largely becomes political when it comes to EVs. You know, the entirety of the right reading articles about how it's not a huge ecological advantage, not nearly as cost effective as they think, but Biden's shoving them down our throats and it might be killing the auto industry. But here's, here's what I want to challenge you with. And I think this is a hopefully will be a helpful conversation to everybody. I do not find fault with the electric vehicle. I wouldn't mind owning one. I haven't seen one yet that I was fall so in love with I wanted to buy it. I wasn't against hybrids. I don't know where they went, but we can come back to that. Can we agree that at, we're at the point now where you can't really make a quantitative argument that EVs are going to save the planet? At best, it's kind of a, at least in the short to midterm, it's a bit of a push. So no, I, I, I can't agree with that at all. You cannot? Uh, no. Now, there, there are some trade-offs early on, uh, you know, we, we're in a stage where we're still digging up a lot of minerals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that does impact the advantages of the EV. But we're going to have the same thing happen that we've had happen with every other vehicle. You're going to start seeing more and more recycling, in this case, of the the batteries and, and other components. Uh, everything I see says that by the late, uh, the late 30s, uh, the vast majority of the material like uh, lithium and cobalt and nickel and what have you will be recycled, much like the lead in the batteries that you have in today's gasoline vehicles. Uh, Eighty to ninety percent of the lead that's in your battery today was probably in another vehicle 
a, a few years before that, and another vehicle before that, and another vehicle okay. before that, going back and back and back. So the higher, the more vehicles that EVs that get out there, uh, the more materials you'll have that'll be recycled for the next generation of EV. All right. And so each time that here, happens, Paul, let's each say each time that happens, you're you're winding up with an improvement in in uh, its impact on the environment. Fine. Accepted. I accept that that response, and I I will concede one point to the the Paul Einstein column of this category. <laughs> but here here's where I'm going to try and, and loop around the back and get you. What we know, despite batteries getting more efficient, is that there's a break-even point, and eventually they will get cheaper and they will get more efficient. But physicists have said there's a limit to what we can do with these batteries. So now that I own an EV and I plug it into a power grid, by the same in the same conversation, it must be mentioned that the DOD had a 300-page report three years ago about how incredibly vulnerable our power grid is. It's massively outdated. And if we were to, to experience a terrorist attack to our power grid, much less just a straight outage, we, we might all be dead in six months. So how can we go from a point at which our power grid can't really handle what we're doing now to one that is supposed to support 50 to 70% of the vehicles on the road 15 years from now? They all have to be plugged in. Well, it actually won't be that fast because uh, people get confused here. They they think that we're going to be at 50% of the vehicles on the road, say, by 2030, the target for uh, the Biden administration. That's of the new vehicle sales. That's not of all the vehicles on the road. Remember, there's a fleet of almost 300 million vehicles out there. And even if you had 100% of all the vehicles sold this year being EVs, uh, with normal scrappage rates and everything, it would take us till into the mid-2040s before everything was electric. But at this point, Paul, if 2040, which is now 17 years away, if that happened, and I know that's that's hyperbole, we know that that's not actually No, it's going to be into the 50s. It'll be in the but 50s. But even in 2050, period. if we were all to plug those cars into the grid, we could end up in a situation where we would be doing a heavy amount of rationing on power. Power is still generated in most places by fossil fuel. There's not enough wind, there's not enough solar, and even if there was, there's not enough battery banks to keep those that energy there. So what is the problem with hybrids? That was an idea that kind of came and started to succeed and then fairly quickly it now has gone out the window. What, why is the hybrid no, it, not a thing? First of all, it hasn't gone out the window. Quite the opposite. Uh, virtually every vehicle that Toyota offers is now a hybrid. And Toyota is among several manufacturers that actually sees hybrids and plug-in hybrids as well as hydrogen vehicles remaining a major part of the fleet through well into the 2030s. Uh, so, no, you're going to see almost all vehicles are going to have some level of hybridization, whether it be mild, standard, or plug-in hybrid, through the 2030s. So, no, quite the opposite. As a matter of fact, uh, look, the new Corvette E-Ray is a hybrid. Uh, increasingly, you have vehicles like, for example, the Ford F-150 hybrid. That's one of the most popular powertrains that Ford offers on that. So, no, you're wrong on that. Uh, I'm sorry to call you out that way. Well, I don't think but that, hybrids, hybrids. I, I think that become... the uh, the devil's in the details. I don't think I'm wrong unless the hybrid is exempt from the 2035 mandate that the White House is trying to to, to install. So, what I hear you saying is the hybrid is still a very relevant thing. But are hybrids ever going to be exempted from this the proposed plan? We'll see what happens. Uh, that's. That's a dozen years out. So, is, it a, is it a true statement, Paul, that in your, and you, obviously you've been doing this for a long time and you're a car lover. 
Mm-hmm. We, we have, is it true that we have never really seen combustion engines be as efficient and reliable as they are today? Uh, yeah, but that's, uh, that doesn't say a lot if you're talking about the combustion engine by itself. If you're talking about hybrids, it gets better and better. Uh, and then plug-in hybrids, where you can run in a significant percentage of your time uh, in an all-electric mode, depending on how much you drive on a particular day, uh, that gets even better. So there are various solutions, and there will continue to be a debate, I would expect, through the end of this decade, maybe even into the 30s, on whether we want to go 100% all-electric in new vehicles or we want to see some hybrid and plug-in hybrids remain. But the bottom line is, by the end of this decade, uh, virtually every vehicle out there will either be all-electric or some form of hybrid. Now, let's get back to a couple other things you talked about with the grid. Uh, First of all, the fastest-growing source of energy in the United States right now, when you're talking the grid, are renewables, wind, solar, geothermal. Some of those continue to operate 24-7. Solar obviously does not. Uh, You're starting to see increased use of energy storage systems to level out, and that's still new, but it will grow. Uh, As to where you get the power for your vehicle, uh, first of all, in some of the states where you have the strongest EV demand, that's also where you have some of the highest uh, renewables. Texas, of all things, gets a huge percentage of its power from renewables, believe it or not, uh, including wind. And you, uh, you're seeing that state also surprisingly have a huge growth in its EV population. Now, you also see EVs generally charged up at night where you have the biggest surplus of energy. If you charge them during the day, sure, you may run into a problem. But 80 to 90% of people charge their vehicles at home, and 80 to 90% of that charging is done during off-peak when there's often a surplus of energy. Well, okay, so that part is interesting. I think that and a lot of us get caught in a very binary situation where we are largely in the echo chambers of the news cycles and the social feeds that we, we always read. The, the argument that raged on years and years ago about wind and solar versus you know fossil fuel generated electricity largely was that there wasn't enough battery bank to store the, the energy. In Texas, they have an advantage because they don't have mountains. They don't have nearly as much trees in many of those areas. And wind is fairly convenient in a relative sense. There's other areas where that doesn't work. I mean, we live in the in the third, second or third cloudiest state in the United States. Solar is not really the same option here on a large scale that it is in others. So how now, if you if the government mandates this, how does the battery part of the world, the battery manufacturing part of the world, how are they asked to bifurcate between making batteries for vehicles versus making batteries for long-term energy storage? How do you ration that? Well, first of all, one thing interesting to consider There's enough solar power here that Ford Motor Company has partnered with DTE that all the energy it uses in the state of Michigan, including all of its factories, will come from renewables. It's already made that partnership. So that tells you that there's plenty of renewable here if Ford is ready to commit to it for its entire manufacturing and other operations in the state of Michigan. Secondly, How do you bifurcate? You don't have to bifurcate. The amount of battery manufacturing is growing at an amazing pace. Uh, We will go from barely 40 gigawatt hours 
2022 to a terawatt in the U.S. by 2030. That's a 25-fold increase. Paul, you're such a reasonable guy that it's hard to argue. But I'm not totally sold, but you're, uh, you piqued my interest. We've got to keep doing this. I'm, you're, you're getting me there, but I'm not all the way there yet. Okay? <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, pal. Talk back, to you then. Back in just a few. Well, I told you sometimes the heavens just align and stories end up piling up on each other that, that help one another make sense. And Marie's got some stuff for us. In an effort to stem the tide of, of population leaving Michigan, the state is launching now a big nationwide talent recruitment program. And the plan is clearly to sell the state of Michigan as a great place, not just to find a job, but to, to build a life. WGR senior analyst Marie Osborne has a look at that program. Hi, Chris. So this is a $20 million talent attraction marketing campaign, which will hopefully jumpstart the state's lackluster population growth in the last 20 years or so. It will target 11 states, places like Texas and Ohio, and several big cities, including New York, San Francisco, and Atlanta. As we know, so many young people head in those directions when they get out of school. Michigan, the 10th most populous state in the nation, had a the 49th slowest rate of population growth since 2000. Only West Virginia was slower. Michigan Economic, Economic Development Corporation spokesman Michelle Grinnell tells the morning show that the program will underscore the value of living here. And it is a value proposition, right? It's not just because we are less expensive. It's that you get more for your dollars here in Michigan and you really can create the life that, that you are aspiring to here in the state with a great career, but all of the great quality of life aspects that come with that. The You Can in Michigan campaign is a new effort to target young people in larger cities with billboards placed near colleges and universities. And Grinnell says they are aware that the worker shortage in Michigan is an immediate need. But this program is designed to help now as well as later. Well, there are some very tangible, acute needs for Michigan companies right now to fill jobs, which we want to support through this campaign. We also know that this is a a longer-term play, and absolutely our, our hope and our intention is that this will be around for quite a long time. Chris, one of the main features of this campaign is an is a website. Uh, it, there is a You Can in Michigan website where employers have already posted jobs along with all of the key elements of this campaign. In other words, highlighting the cost of living, quality of life, and natural beauty. The website is themichiganlife.org. Well, good for us for taking taking a step towards uh, preaching the merits of being a Michigander. Uh, Marie, with all your travels that you have done in the last decade or so, have you been to a place that you thought to yourself, now I can see why people want to, to build a life here, more so than Michigan to the degree that you would consider moving? Boy, that's an interesting question. Um, I like certain things about different parts of the country. Um, but you know, I have to say there, I'm not, I can't really say that there would be another part of the country where I've thought, wow, I can really get why people are moving mm-hmm. here of all places. Um, you know, we, our oldest daughter, um, went to college here in Michigan and then left for New York and she's still there. So sure. we, you know, but we're always saying, oh, I don't know why, you know. Michigan has a lot to offer, too. It does. And some, I've had that same conversation. My two oldest daughters, one who went to Michigan State and she works and lives here, one who's down in Florida at college. 
you know, when you talk to the younger kids, oftentimes climate is plays such a huge role. Yeah. They say, geez, I want to go somewhere sunny. My, my next youngest brother, JJ, works for the Phoenix Department, uh, um, the police department and the FBI out there. I, I would never live in Phoenix. I, and he, he doesn't want to either. He'd love to move back. I find it fascinating that we go to some of these areas that statistically are the fastest growing I think Phoenix is the second fastest growing Mm -hmm. metro area. It's like being in a a giant litter box. I mean, honestly. Tell us how you really feel, Chris. I'm I'm telling you, besides the golf and the restaurants and things in Scottsdale, which is essentially. Scottsdale is a world on its own. It's a world on its own. Yeah. If you live outside of that in the metro area, you are literally going into a grid, a giant litter box grid with a Coles on every corner and two Applebee's and a gas station. And when you find your subdivision, which is hard, it's like, where's Waldo? They all look exactly the same. And, and you find your home, you think, why do I live here? And there's no green. There's, there's basically no, no green. green. No green. Great I think, for colorblind people. <laughs> I think Tom was saying this this morning. Tom Jordan. I'm not positive. I think it was Tom that I heard him say that uh, Phoenix has the palest people on the planet. Well, I was saying, they I was never saying go that because I'm teasing. It's, it's totally true. I mean, it's like an oven there two-thirds of the year, and they, they could make that trade. And they say, look, up in Michigan, you have three or four months where it's unbearable to be outside. Mm. That's been, you know, it's debatable. I like the snow, personally. Yeah. But if we remove climate from that equation and we say, well, what are the attractions elsewhere? I can see, for example, how in Atlanta you have a tremendous amount of communications. I can see how in New York you have a tremendous amount of finance and mortgage and news. There's reasons that people transplant. Is there any quantitative data on the people between 20 and 50 who are still in the life-building phase? Those who are leaving Michigan, where are they going? Is that in that report at all? No, it um, no, it is not. Um, you know, they're they're definitely heading to the Sun Belt. There's no question about that uh, in large numbers. But, you know, what Michigan really does have, and they have had for a long time, probably need to capitalize on this, is... Um, Technology, uh, engineering, those kinds of jobs are really pl- plentiful here. Mm-hmm. And that is something that, you know, should be definitely touted as, you know, you can build your career here. You can build your life here in this type of industry. You know, one thing that is not mentioned very often, and, I, and I'm a tax policy nerd, I, I, I simply don't understand why if, if Michigan is in this particular quagmire, they don't just eliminate the state tax and raise the the sales tax a touch. We have a very moderate sales tax, but very penalizing sales tax relative to the Floridas and the Arizonas. Yeah. And I, and, and it's always an eye popper when you travel to these other places and you look at your receipt, you go, wait a minute. And those taxes are pretty high. All right. As I promised at one o'clock, I'm going to get real spicy and make sure that all my conservative buddies and all my liberals are mad at me at the same time. I can't wait to right. hear. See you in a few. Okay, as promised, rolling into the one o'clock hour. And I'm going to, if I had my own show, everybody, which is a distant, distant dream. But if I had my own show, I'd make this a regular thing. I'm going to call this segment, How to Make Everybody Equally Mad at the Same Time with over, Overly Obvious Solutions. And look, in this remaining hour, call in. Tell me that I'm crazy. Argue with me, please. 800-859-0957. That can be the official complaint line. So look, we have an immigration problem. I mean, to be fair, though, we have an an illegal immigration problem, especially at the Mexican border. There is tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people somehow just eking through. Many of these days, by the way, they're being smuggled in by the same cartels they're trying to escape from. 
and, and actually telling authorities, yeah, we, we owe XYZ cartel $3,000 over the next 24 months for getting us over here. Shocking. And these people, the, these people that are so desperate, they're so scared, they're so helpless, they're willing to risk their lives to end up here on our soil. Most of them that end up integrated somehow end up in the big cities, the, the Phoenixes, the San Antonio, Southern California, Texas. Sanctuary cities that the liberals have now propagated everywhere have become so disturbingly overrun with tent cities and, and feces in the streets and mayhem that now they're crying, mercy, mercy, help us. So now apparently Biden's going to start get back on that wall project. You know the wall project, the same one that, that, that Obama said that he was going to build and then didn't do anything about it. And then Trump said he was going to build, started doing it, and he was a heartless warmonger and a white supremacist. That wall. So depending like where you are in this country, the problem may or may not actually exist to you on anything other than the news. If you're a construction worker, let's say, in Phoenix area and you can't find work, that's a problem. Because there are lines of undocumented workers standing out in front of the Home Depot every morning and they'll hop in the back of somebody's truck and they'll work for a few days, cash, under the table. And the builder can knock those projects out, no problem. Doesn't have to pay benefits, doesn't have to report FICA, doesn't have to do SOCH. It's a cheap date. So if you're that guy in Phoenix, your job got stolen, you're mad. And there's no infrastructure help there. There's no income taxes being paid. There's no contribution to an underfunded Social Security and Medicare system. This is a disaster. The hospitals get overrun by people who need care, and they go, and the hospital can't turn them away, but there's no insurance. They don't have driver's licenses. Up north, by the way, in the, in the northern part of our state, apple orchards are a massive thing. By the way, the apple orchards just were, were reporting now in our local papers that they can't find enough people to, to carry the freight because they won't give immigrants or undocumented driver's licenses. This is a mess. You want apples? we got to fix this. But if, I tell you, on that note, if you made yourself a salad last night full of avocados and, and lettuce and everything that comes from California, chances are that an immigrant labor force put those vegetables on your table. Our agriculture system is chocked full of South American workers that do the jobs that Americans would rather not do most of the time. Yeah, but Chris... Our colleges are full of young kids who are struggling to find work. Yeah, I know, with degrees in philosophy and therapy and basket weaving and you name it, to the tune of a couple hundred thousand dollars. Engineering, supply chain management, there's, there's stuff that matters, but we need help. Filipino workers are flooding the service industry and have been for 20 some odd years. Hospitality, they fold your hospital sheets, they wash your dishes, they make breakfast. They're taking pride in the fact that they're building a life that's not under a, a, a system of oppression. There's not bullets flying and there's not cartels. But we can't just open the borders, can we? It'd be total chaos. But what if in this country, if we predictably, responsibly, lovingly, carefully started inviting people more in? Hear me out. The United States has a big, big problem. We, we, we don't manufacture anything. Check this out. In the last, last year, 2022, we bought 112 billion B billion in machinery from China, 42.8 billion just in toys and plastic goods, 29.67 billion in furniture, signs and lighting. Why are you going to go on Amazon and buy something for $12 that costs 43 cents to make and has to be freighted across the ocean? Tell me that environmentalist. Are you telling me we can't make that here? 
all the open space that we have, are you liberals really under the impression that we'd be fostering some kind of slave labor system, bringing all these jobs here? And are my conservative friends really going to argue that we're overpopulated? We have 332 million people here. Come on. China has 1.4 billion people spread across 3.7 million acres of, of land. The U.S. has 332 million spread across 3.8 million square miles of land. Not acres, miles, sorry. It's about the same, except we have th- uh, less than a third of the people. If you want to argue about population density, then that's an easy fix. You stop driving them to Phoenix and Texas and Los Angeles and lower parts of New York and the southern states, and you start allocating to states that actually need it. I challenge you to get in your car and drive north anywhere in Michigan and not marvel at how much open space there is. I just last week drove up to Midland and hung a left, headed up to Branch County, which, by the way, is one of the poorest, if not the poorest county in Michigan. There's beautiful roads. There's a gorgeous landscape. There's highway access everywhere. It is ripe for industrial infrastructure. It's dying for jobs. It's an area plagued by the temptation of living off the federal government, i.e. welfare, versus making minimum wage. And why? We just watch our auto manufacturers at at a complete standstill for over a year because of microprocessor shortages coming from China. The supply chain for all these little doodads and trinkets and small machine parts is still choked up from COVID. Despite what you may think, at least statistically, this, this country could handle another 50 to 100 million people. We don't have any of the actual shortages that they claim that we would have. The water shortage in Phoenix is one thing because they're piping it in from the Colorado River. Yes, stop overpopulating that area. We have a surplus of water here. How about the government gives federal tax credits, billion-dollar tax credits to the companies that could build massive factories for manufacturing? Why don't we buy our own parts? Take the power away from China. Empower people here. That means all of a sudden we're back to building apartments. they got to live somewhere. That means we're stocking supermarkets. The local farmers are supplying way more. That helps them. It means builders are building, landscapers are landscaping. It means farmers are growing. It means restaurants are bustling. It means tax dollars are coming in, increasing the revenue base. Social Security is broke. There are more people receiving than paying in. It means the multiplicity of foreigners, by the way, that come into the U.S., the intellectual types that are coming here for uh, medicine degrees. They don't just turn around and go back to their, their country of origin to find work. This is really an amazing problem. If you're in an airplane and you look out the window and what do you see? You see grids and grids and grids full of open space. I realize there's legitimate counter arguments to this. 800-859-0957. Give me one. The reality is that we're dying in the manufacturing space. We've gotten too big for our britches. Everyone's going to college and they want to do something fancy with their brain. But a lot of these people, many of whom are refugees, literally and figuratively are dying to come in here. And we're building walls for hundreds of billions to keep them out. We were built by immigrants. We savored the diversity and the history of the men and women who came here with nothing. We benefited wildly from the shameful history of enslavement, bringing African-Americans here who did a lot of the heavy lifting. And now here we are in basically a manufacturing arms race with company or countries that want to wipe us off the map. Tell me I'm wrong. We could be bigger. There is power in numbers. 
800-859-0957. Back in a few. Well, if you heard me get all that off my chest for the last eight minutes or so in the, the previous segment, I really do believe that the answer to the immigration problem is to somehow or another open our arms and open our hearts to the men and women that want to be here, want to be citizens, want to be workers. And we we basically embark on the most robust immigration plan we've had since the beginning of this country. I think it would make a huge difference. And it's, it's the solution that the big hearted, smart, intellectual solution to most of our manufacturing problems. Rebecca out in Rochester Hills, thanks for waiting. What do you have to say? Um, I lost my two sons, Caleb and Kyler, 18 and 20, um, three years ago from fentanyl poisoning. And this is not a demand problem. Children like mine weren't asking for fentanyl. This is a supply problem, and it's streaming over our southern border. Our first duty is to protect our people. We're losing, we're on track for almost 125,000 this year. You talk about a shortage of workers. It's the number one cause of death ages 18 to 45. We have to do something about our southern border. There's a means to be able to have people come here lawfully and to be able to fill jobs. We, we have mechanisms for that. But allowing two and a half million people to stream across our southern border and, and you know, you mock the idea of a wall. We have to have some sort of protection. We have to have a defense for our nation. Rebecca, I, I couldn't agree with you more in almost everything you said. And as a, as a man who's lost a son, just like you have, I, my heart bleeds with you. I am not mocking in any way, shape, or form the idea of a wall. In fact, I think the ineptness of our federal government to confront what is one of the most corrupt governments in the world, the Mexican government, who has a first-world coastline, and a third world interior to let their cartels run rampant across our borders, deliver so many drugs and do so much crime and murder and harm is an absolute tragedy. I, th- I do think, however, those two subjects are not directly correlated. Adding to our workforce and allowing people who want to be legal immigrants a, a naturalization path to get here and be constructive parts of society would actually decrease the amount of cartel activity. It is big, big business to ship people here. And that is a massive part of the problem. So, Rebecca, my heart bleeds with you. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine experiencing that pain again, but I'm going to stick to my guns on we could be bigger and stronger and more ethical together. Greg in Ontario, what say you? Yeah, hey, Chris. Uh, look, I, I, I heard your eight-minute talk there, and I have to say to myself, that was some of the most common-sense comments I've heard on the radio in a long time. And I, just based on that alone, you should get your own show. <laughs> we need more people. Like, you know, honest to God. You know, uh, in my country here, we have the same problem. Well, similar problems, I would say. Um, We have 38 million people here in Canada, and we have 14 million of those people living in one province, and mostly in southern Ontario, right? Right. And they keep bringing in uh, immigrants here, 500,000 years or goal, and they're all just concentrating into the same area, which is causing major problems with our health care, amongst other things. And you're absolutely right. Uh, people have to start spreading out and going to places to seek employment uh, in different areas uh, across this land. And you're 100%. I know in this country you drive from the West Coast to the East Coast, and there's just barren land everywhere. That could be used for something. Sure. And, Greg, um, not, so- not by any stretch inhospitable land. 
land that is flat, land that is, is rich and fertile in, in terms of soil structure and, and plenty of water and highway infrastructure systems. There is no reason. And I know other callers are going to make this comment, too, and I'm, I'm happy to take them. I think that this argument dies with agreement. We have a massive problem at the border. We have a massive problem with figuring out how do we, in a very moral way, accept enough people to make this fair, but turn away people that don't have a right to be here. I think that there's a middle solution that no one ever talks about. Thanks for your feedback, Greg. Although I tell you, Greg, I do have a full-time job. I'd be happy to see you in my office, but behind a mic is not an everyday thing for me, bud. Thanks, though. Chris in Sterling Heights, what's happening, my friend? Uh, just talking about you want to bring $100 million in here. Okay, let's start with our poverty level in here. Our poverty level is $13,000. Can you live on $13,000 paying your telephone bill, your insurance, your car payment, your house payment, rent payment? And then what about the hospitals? Okay. Doctors, Stop. nurses. Stop, Chris. Chris, live, living, living, and thriving are two different things. Can speak English fluently? Okay, Chris. I mean, hang on. Yeah. You, want, you want to have a good conversation? You don't need to. You don't need a car payment, and an insurance payment, and a, and a, a cable bill to live. So poverty. How are you going to get to work? How are you going to get to work? I don't know, mass transportation, walking, a bicycle. A lot of people find a way. When you go to states like Wyoming, Montana, northern Michigan, Idaho, Alabama, there is open space and jobs needed everywhere. But the poverty that we have, we have put on ourselves in many cases via the welfare system has done nothing but cripple this system. There's a whole lot of poor, hurting people in this country. Visit West Virginia. It's right in your face. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to up our manufacturing. And it doesn't mean that the hardworking men and women that want to be here and work shouldn't be here and work. I hear you, but I don't buy it entirely. Hey, Dave Rieger, what about text messages we got coming in? We can't ignore them. Oh, Dave's on the phone. Scott in Detroit. What's going on, Scott? Hey there. I I agree with you. I think uh, there should be a, you know, that we should bring as many legal immigrants into this country as we can. I, I agree we need we need the, the people for manufacturing. But I do not agree that we should have any form of legal pathway for the illegal immigrants that are here. I think you built that wall and you streamlined the legal process. And as soon as people start seeing that there is a legal streamlined process, these people that are here illegally have them leave, go back to Mexico or Guatemala or wherever they're from, and come back legally in a streamlined fashion. Okay. But under no circumstances should we be giving any sort of legal pathway for these illegal immigrants. All right, Scott. All I, I, hear, I hear what you're saying. Thanks for the feedback. John in Detroit. What's going on, pal? Chris, great show. Thanks, I man. I want to put my two cents in. Why don't these immigrants that are coming into Canada and the United States, why don't we put them in trailer parks or campgrounds and, and build communities with decent campers or trailers and let them start over? Why do we have to have them in apartments and, and houses and everything? Let them move into these trailers, which are our, our houses. Yeah. And start from there. Listen, hey, man, you're not. That's a really interesting point because you hit on something that I didn't think of. And I, I congratulate you and thank you for that. One of the most beautiful things about freedom is to be free from the decisions of others. 
And one of the biggest upsides in this country is that if you work hard enough, and it may not happen within one generation, one thing that we can claim to fame in a capitalist system that gets such a bad rap is there a tremendous amount of uh, maneuverability between classes. You could absolutely move here and live in a small mobile home or a modular thing or something like that. And two generations later, your kids are buying their first brick and mortar home in a nice little subdivision. That's what dreams are made of. Many of them are living in huts next to rivers with filthy water, and they're plagued by cartel violence. You're 100% right. This is not an overnight solution. It's just that why do we keep on resisting a fairly obvious solution? We are underpopulated based on the mass acreage that we have, and we're under-manufacturing relative to the rest of the world, and it's going to cost us in the long run. Ken in Brighton. What's going on, Ken? And that's too much, Chris. Thank you for taking my call. Wonderful show as usual. Um, listen, uh, the guy before stole my thunder. I could not agree more. We have millions of people that have arrived in our country illegally, quote unquote. Let, why does it take so many years for our process to to make someone a, a U.S. citizen? We can vet somebody in an hour sure. with the computerization and the in the context we have. Right. And and the the end result is guess what, we'll have several million more taxpayers. Amen, baby. How Listen, how how this, bad is that? This is not me being a, a crazy liberal bleeding heart. This is me being a, a a thinker, a fiscal thinker. We need a tax base. Social security is going to crumble. Medicare is going to be gone if we don't get more people in here that are actually working, making money. Good thoughts, Ken. We're back with my buddy Jason Rowe after the break. How messy is the GOP? Let's find out. Right, I got to get my blood pressure down after the last couple segments. That was fun, though, but not as much fun as talking to pals of mine who are far, far smarter. We, smarter. we, we have on the line Jason Rowe, political strategist for the GOP for years and years, Rowe Strategic. Jason, as we're watching news headlines float across the screen here, GOP now has picked uh, Steve Scalise as the House Speaker. Some of what we were going to talk about is going to go out the window and... Help us unpack why does this matter? Why was he better than Jordan? If that's a, a conversation you're willing to have, and where do we go from here? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Chris. This is uh, interesting timing. Um, you know, it's kind of what I suspected might happen. Um, it's a couple reasons. Uh, first is uh, fundraising, and it might be the most important. Um, you know, Scalise has been the second biggest fundraiser for House Republicans after Kevin McCarthy, mm-hmm. and that's going to be important because whoever the speaker is, is going to have to raise a couple hundred million dollars into the NRCC and the congressional leadership fund to, uh, you know, have Republicans hold the majority. And Jim Jordan, while, you know, a great legislator is not a political guy. He doesn't have a fundraising apparatus that compares to Scalise. And so he, you know, he would have inherited the infrastructure, but not the relationships with major donors that, sure. that are important to funding campaigns. So if you're a House member, that could be the difference between a million dollars in expenditures on your behalf and five million. And from a strategy, uh, so that's the, um, go ahead. Uh, from, from, you know, from the, uh, the political standpoint. And then I think the other thing is I think, you know, things like Trump and Nancy Mace and, and some of the people that got in behind um, uh, Jordan, I don't think helped him. I think they're, right. you know, this is the legislative branch. And I don't think a, a legislator necessarily wants the potential leader of the executive branch dictating to them who their leader is. And so I think it was also a little bit of showing 
the independence of the legislative branch from the executive branch and the the outside influences that affect um, what's happening on Capitol sure. Hill. Well, strategy in elections is what you do. My my one of the thoughts that I can't get away from is the timing of this obviously was exacerbated by what happened in, in Israel. But when you go back now a few weeks and you look at all all Gates's show ponying and you know, YouTube hoggery behind the microphone and how this looked from a from an optics standpoint. Is there a bit of a fear that with an already fairly relatively slim majority, are, are people a year from now at election time going to remember what a cluster mess this was and perhaps change their vote? I, I think it really depends on what House Republicans do moving forward. If if this change ends up satiating uh, Gates and his crew and um, and, you know, Speaker Scalise is able to govern, then I think it's going to be just fine. If we find ourselves veering from crisis to crisis, then uh, Republicans will pay a price. I don't think it's a great look when you're trying to make the case that, you know, we're the ones standing between, um, you know, you and Joe Biden and, you know, we're going to go fight to govern and and lead this country Mm -hmm. when we can't lead ourselves. And so, I also felt like this would probably get buttoned up relatively quickly. I know there were some members of the House Republican Conference that wanted to wait a week. I think that would have been politically a disaster. And I think particularly in wake of what happened in Israel, if there was another attack, uh, if if something, God forbid, happened on our shores, um, you know, to have this kind of intramural family fight going on while Rome is burning would have uh, been disastrous yeah, right. for Republicans. Was the, and obviously there was quite a bit of talk about, hey, this threshold never should have been this low. Let's not let's not let this behavior happen again with such a small minority kind of rallying this cry. Did anything actually take place in, you know, quote unquote, confirmation of Scalise coming in to, to up that threshold? Is there any, I don't know, guarantee that this won't happen again? Yeah, I don't know where they settled. I know it was a topic of conversation, at least as of a day ago. Um, You know, the motion to vacate just does not allow the leader to lead. You know, the way this should function is, you know, you you make sure that you, um, you know, elect your leaders within the House Republican conference and then go to the floor and, you know, basically uh, codify that decision. Uh, The idea that eight Republicans who didn't get their way then conspire with Democrats to overthrow their leader is, you know, not not a good look and not a way that, that, you know, Speaker Scalise or any future speaker can govern effectively. So hopefully a lesson has been learned. I have a feeling that those eight will not try this again. But, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought they would have followed through it the first time aside from Gates himself. Yeah, and it may be it may be conjecture, Jay, but in in the background, there's got to be a lot of semi-hostility towards Gates's behavior and, and causing this mess. And the people of Florida, you know, he kind of says, listen, they elected me. They're, they're going to stay behind me. Do you, do you find that to be true? I mean, you're a bit of a betting man, but not in your business. What's the actual temperature of his colleagues versus the constituents, you think? Well, I think I think uh, his colleagues overwhelmingly are outraged. And I think that applies to all eight of them. Um, I mean, there there are members, of, you know, of the House Republican Conference that are, are uh, scathing in their public criticism, and, and folks don't usually do that with their colleagues. You know, with voters, I don't know about the district. I mean, certainly he's going to plant a flag with uh, some of the less constructive uh, voters who just want to burn the place down. Uh, but I, you know, I saw a national poll that 75% of Republicans disagreed with the decision to overthrow McCarthy, and that's a pretty significant number in politics sure. today. 
Okay, so I guess lastly, as we, we close the, the segment out, as a guy who I know hopes and prays and roots wholeheartedly for a real renaissance of the, of the fundamental GOP, the traditionalist GOP, is there any encouraging signs on the horizon, things that have actually made your eyelids go up and you say, hey, I like that, that feels good? I wish I could say that. Um, I mean, right now, um, Republicans benefiting, uh, unfortunately, from the things that are going wrong in this country. Um, so it's more we've inherited a situation that you know, only we could screw up. Uh, but when you look at inflation, when you look at uh, energy prices, and that's gas and home heating as we go into winter, when you look at the cost of housing, uh, when you look at the poorest southern border, you look at the, you know, the, the, the things that are going on in Ukraine and Israel and, and the threats that we have from Russia and China. We have an opportunity to seize on these, but we also have an opportunity to blow it. And so it's really up to Republicans to take advantage of the window that we have, establish trust with the electorate and then capitalize on it. Yeah, three years of a majority. Would you is it fair to say that they could have done more at this point with that majority? Oh, well, they've they've done a lot of damage. Um, I don't know what more they could do uh, to undermine our uh, economy and our standing in the world. Uh, So I don't know that we can risk uh, much more of that. Well, Jason, we appreciate your input. As always, you're the the smartest guy I know on that particular subject. You need to get to know more people. Well, I mean, I only know so many that I enjoy playing golf with, so it is what it is, you know? <laughs> all right, thanks, All right, Chris. thanks, pal. We'll see you soon. Dave Bye. Rieger, when you look at that scenario with all the, the messiness in Washington, D.C., does it not – forget taking sides if you're a Democrat or a Republican and you watch these people and, and all the infighting. Doesn't it look to you just like an abject disaster? Like, are, is, are the inmates really running the asylum at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, – they're just a mess. The, the, even the local GOP, uh, it's just – it's weird. It's just – you would think that they would be preparing. You would think they would be ready, you know, for 2024 and the whole election thing. And it's just – everything is a mess right now. I, yeah, mean, I don't get it. And frankly, as a guy who – I, I like to see nobility and dignity at the forefront of all of these things. And I know that sounds like a little bit of hyperbole and dramatized, but good grief. Matt Gates is under so many, much scrutiny for his own personal bad behavior. I can't believe he was the one waving this flag in the first place. Boot that guy. Yeah. That's what, uh, that's what Tim Wahlberg said when he was on. All right. We're going to get a little bit of Chris squared here in a bit. Well, okay, then. That was a lively two hours. It flew by. I enjoy doing it so much. I hope you enjoyed it enough to stomach me the next time that they put the A symbol up like the Batman symbol in the sky. And they say, Chris, Paul's out of town. Come in here. But now we're at the five-yard line, and I get my favorite time of the day, which is a double dose of Chris. Chris's with Chris Alberta and Chris Renwick. And I, Chris wasn't privy to a lot of this conversation. Chris, what did you think about Biden's comments yesterday post-speech? Um, uh, we, we covered it here, and I thought it was bland. He He said what he needed to say in terms of, you know, the United States is is squarely behind Israel. Right. Which is fine. I, I, I miss a little bit uh, of of an eloquent speaker in that position. I wish, you know, m- maybe Joe would have had a, a, a coffee beforehand would have been nice. But, well, I, but outside is, of all of those things, he, he says what he needs to say. You and I differ just a touch. I am not going to fault the man for being 80. I have uh, I don't particularly care for the man's politics, but I'm going to respect the office. And I know you do, too. Yeah. And they, look, he, did it look tired? Yes. Did it look? I mean, a lot of his speech is kind of breathy and trailing off. And then he went on that little meandering thing about a picture in the hallway or something like that. And you're like, what? Wait a second. But did he say the right things? Yes. Are there, And one of the things that I always am reminding my friends is some of the things that they are whining about 
having gone missing from the speech might not have been said because of legitimate reasons. We are not in these rooms. We are not in there with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We're not on these phone calls. Sometimes things that are not said are not said for a reason. They're not going to proclaim that Iran is solely responsible because they weren't. And they're not going to complain, say that they were directly responsible because that would defeat the entire purpose of what Iran spent 300 years worth of mafioso planning doing, mm-hmm. which is not being directly responsible. Fair? Correct. Right. And he did call out some of the very loose Democrats who are kind of anti-Semitic. And I think that that's a good. I'll give him a feather for that one. Will you? Here's what I want. You, here's what I wanted him to do is, first of all, I wanted to come out earlier than when he did. He shouldn't have come out yesterday. Should have come out Sunday, Monday, at the latest. He was tied up. He was being questioned by the special counsel with his uh, classified documents case. So he was tied up. My my thing is that, you know what? Lay it all out there. Okay. Now, you don't need to give us sensitive information, but we all know that Iran played a role here. We know that Hezbollah, being backed by Iran, is now making a, a, a move in the northern part of, of Israel. Mm-hmm. Let's 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 just be honest. Where are we at with this? And I see and I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that there's so much happening behind the scenes that's still developing. Some of that some of that timeline is not him taking a nap, sipping his Metamucil while he watches Golden Girls. Your words, not mine. OK, that <laughs> that it, it, it's coming out when it needs to come. Sure. Out. This is not a, this is not a terrorist attack on our soil in our country. So I'm happy to place blame on policy failures within our country once it's quantitative that this is why it happened. I think there's some, certainly there's some indirect blame there for the coddling of these terrorist nations for a long time. But that's a, that's a story for over a beer and on a golf day. Let me ask you a question. We have 331.9 million people in this country, mm-hmm. okay, in a land space that's essentially the same exact size as China, which has 1.4 billion people. Mm-hmm. Yet we have a massive immigration problem. We're trying, trying, trying to keep them out. We let in about 1 million, what they call net immigrants, legal immigrants per year. I am on the fence with all of this. And I and that this is the introduction to my segment. I All my conservative friends hate this about me and all my liberal friends hate this about me. I think we could have 100 million more people in this country and, and take on the most robust legalized, normal immigration program in the history of our country and allocate 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 people a year to all of these states that are enormously underpopulated and, and retake the manufacturing crown of the world. What say you? So, look, I don't think anybody's against immigration. I think people are against illegal immigration. I think people are against people coming across the border that, that don't even qualify for asylum in most cases. Oh, stop it. Uh, that's the Qualify truth. Qualify for asylum. People who are refugees. Look, but these are the laws that we have in place. But the law we have in place is in many ways structured in such a way that we're only letting in so many because that's the policy. That's what those spe- specific departments can handle. There are men and women and their children willing to die to get across a border from the nastiest, most ungoverned cartels, from one of the nastiest, most ridiculous governments in history, the Mexican government. They want to come here and work their butts off. They don't have to go to Phoenix. They don't have to go to Los Angeles. They could come to parts of northern Michigan. They could go to Wyoming. They could go to upper Ohio. Sure. There, there is plenty of places to put them, and there's plenty of work to be done. If we want to stop buying things for $14 on Amazon that cost $0.34 cents to make, and they end up, they end up steam-trucked across an ocean, 
to get here. So, the environmentalists should care about this. The liberals should be in love with the idea. The conservatives should go grow the tax base and grow our national defense. What's the problem? I, it, I, I think you're dealing with two separate issues. Immigration and manufacturing are two separate issues. Now, you've tied them together nicely. But but when you're dealing with bringing manufacturing back in mass into where we don't have to be relying on countries like China stealing our IP and, and, and taking all of these jobs and paying workers literally pennies on the dollar, the, 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 we are so far removed from that. We are so far removed from being able to bring manufacturing back in mass. I totally disagree. Where it, 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 is, it is a mountain to climb. And that's why when you partner that with people streaming across the border at record rates, it becomes very difficult why, to manage. When you get a latte at Starbucks in the morning and they spin that little screen around and says, do you want to leave a gratuity? Mm-hmm. While there's simultaneously a sign in the window that says we pay $18.25 an hour. Sure. $18.25 an hour. There are immigrants who make $18 a day mm-hmm. in Mexico. They would happily work for $10, $12 an hour here. Sure making the same goods that we are essentially emboldening China by giving them. We are giving a country who is pledged to wipe us off the map at some point. All of this money and all of these resources and all of this control over us via trade tariff policy, we are so reliant on them. Look at the microprocessors alone. Yes. There, there is a solution somewhere, and this is where I think the cool heads need to prevail. And we need to say, look, stop sticking to the antiquated nonsense of the far right and the far left let's find a way there is power in numbers right absolutely if t- if 10 hard-working players go to dan campbell and say i would love to get on the field and show you why i can be in your starting lineup what are you going to say come on in if i don't have to pay let's go sure work out let's yeah. see what you got yeah there's a whole lot of people saying look what i got but are they going to work out hmm Sorry for another day. I hope I get to get back soon. Thanks for having me, Michigan. That was a whole lot of fun. Have fun with Chris Renwick in the next two hours.